You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 159 of the MXU podcast. I'm Jeff Sandstrom. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, partner in crime, Dadu Worldwide himself, Jay Desai. How What's are you, up, buddy? everybody? I'm doing great. Jeff, I was just noticing this angle is so not flattering. Well, there's you're get, sometimes you're yeah, getting anytime under, anybody, under man boob, under man boob, under chin from this angle. Well, anytime people take selfies, you know, may, maybe we could educate the people on proper camera technique because sometimes, like, if you take a selfie and your your head is pointed too far down, you might reveal a double chin. You know, if you're pointing up at your body from like your belly, then you might reveal man boob or chin or not a lot of face you know it's or a, just or a crooked beard line it looks like looks like i didn't i didn't shave well under here yeah well well it's because i'm 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 sitting up right in the bed and the laptop's on my lap so this is what you get well let, let's talk about why you're why you're lounging in the first place uh um, well, i'm in cabo it, again yeah exactly so jay has been doing the lord's work again in cabo and this is the second trip in not very long. So what are the yeah, good was, people down there doing now? Well, I was here last week. I was here last week and uh, it was a fantastic time uh, with a few lovely people like brother Justin Bieber and uh, Tyler Hubbard of Georgia, Florida line and some other, some nice. other fancy folks. Um, uh, that was a good time. And then I had to go, I had to leave here. I was summoned back to America Uh to to get the Phil Wickham tour started. We had some uh, tour rehearsals Then we had our first couple of shows. So it was Phil. It wasn't the, it wasn't the Georgia state police. No, no, no. The summons was from pastor Phil Wickham. Um, And then uh, I I thought it was like a summons to appear in court or something. No, no. And then uh, the Lord called me back to Cabo where I'm here with uh, brother Christian Stanfield and some dear friends doing some more ministry. Nice. And, uh, yeah, then on next week I'll have to go see the fine folks down at Chick-fil-A next for their annual. All right. Well, you guys, know, you I just from... wake up and say, send me Lord. You know, I don't know what to tell y'all. <laughs> I just, and then, you know, things end up in my Delta app and then I just go to the airport where I've been. Yeah. Said to go. I like it. Well, you know, so, but I'm in the bed hiding from everyone because everyone's at the pool and you and I have work to do. So here I am nice in my room. So you go from. Lounging by the pool to working on a podcast to going to work for the Holy Poultry next week. So I love yeah. it. You're well, I gotta even such out a dedicated missionary. Oh, there I you did go. not use That's any good. sunscreen yesterday, and I'm feeling it today. It turns out us brown folk get crispy real quick. Well, especially in the middle of winter. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not winter here, but I have seen so many whales, by the way. It's like every really? time you see yeah, because it's uh, migration season, they come down this way to mate. Up the little peninsula up here, no pun intended, uh-huh. and then uh, then they swim back up and go north. And so, uh, but you see whales all day, and there's a guy whose literal job it is to ring a bell when a, when a whale breaches or you know tails up and or uh, wow. blows the water up or whatever. You know, I don't know what that's called, fancy names, I'm sure, but he literally rings a bell, and everyone's like a kid, like ooh, ah. Great. What if everybody rang a bell every time you spouted out your blowhole? <laughs> I don't think you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> that should be that should be like on a on a uh, a blooper reel. 
I, I hope you take that section and just send that dispenser. <laughs> That's hey, a, hey, it might make the episode. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, well, hey, to TBD, you know, it depends what mood you're in when you're editing. <laughs> um, I, exactly. I was thinking the other day, I was like, Jeff still edits the podcast, which I love because I know you like doing it and you're really good at it. But it's probably better because you never know what I say. It needs to be edited out, you know. If I left it to somebody else, we might have some email complaints to support. We should teach Stella how to edit. We should just get Stella to edit these. I don't know if I want Stella listening to all of your uh, (laughs) off-color comments. True, true. Um, Man, well, I am enjoying my time here, but I was also thinking the other day, this got super serious for some reason, how busy church is in January. I don't know if other people are feeling that, but I know back home at the Passion World, you know, I'm just it's just right out the gate. It was like a 10-day rest period, and then it was right back to it. Yeah. This, there's winter retreats well, people, and you know, I, coming up. Yeah, there's a lot of student stuff going on. It's the same at my church. We've got a lot of student retreats, winter weekend type stuff. And then Easter is early this year. It's like instead of being in April, Easter is the last Sunday in March. So I think people are finally like. Do we tell tuning someone like the, Jesus know that we 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 moved it up? <laughs> Has to do with the lunar calendar, Jay. It's not anything about the Lord and Savior. It's about just where the full moon lands, and here we are. That's great. But it is early this year, and so people are probably feeling a little sense of urgency, going, "Okay, we got to get some planning done, and what's going to happen for." our Easter services. So here we are at the end of January. We're two months to Easter. It's like, wow, it's crazy. I mean, it's going to be summer before we know it. It's going to be whatever. I mean, it's, it's time is flying for me. It's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it is really is flying. I've been to four countries this month. In this month. Yeah. I went to Prague. I went to Berlin and Germany and I went to Copenhagen and Denmark and now I'm in Mexico. And that's and not I've been even to counting. Yeah, I've been to Florida. <laughs> that's a whole other country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, well, well, speaking of traveling and being in a lot of places, we need to let the good people know about our plans for live events this year. So many yes. of you already know, but we have announced officially that MXU pop-ups are coming your way. So there's going to be six events in different cities all over the country. We're trying to go to places we've not been before. And we're trying to kind of spread it out time-wise throughout the year. So uh, it's going to be basically March, April, June, August, September, October. And we're going to Phoenix, D.C. area, Columbus, Ohio, Dallas-Fort Worth area, Fort Lauderdale, and Seattle. So for I mean, those of you in the Pacific Northwest, I know. Well, we've, we've been getting a lot of requests over the years. Hey, when are you going to come to the Pacific Northwest? Well, This year is your year. So we're really excited to go to places we haven't been, to interact with churches that we only know by kind of email and reputation and interacting with us here. Um, And so we're super excited. Our first event is March 19th in Phoenix at CCV. And so if you are in Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Southern California, any anywhere in that region, Cabo, it's going to be your opportunity to come to MXU pop-ups. So tickets are on sale now and we cannot wait to see you there. 
it's going to be great. I should make a, a, I should make a city guide for each city, you know, so people know good places. Oh, that's a good idea. Right. I will do that. A little coffee, a little snack, a little beverage station, you know, there's some great places, even a little shopping. I've been known to retail therapy from time to time. Um, Speaking of, I got a new Jason bag the other day. Oh, you did? What kind? Uh, It's a uh, more of a duffel style traveler. It's really my bus bag now. Yeah. And, you know, with the luggage woes while traveling on a longer trip, I put a few, I always check a bag. Like I'm not, I'm not lugging my luggage everywhere, but I have recently on longer trips. Bigger than you are. Yeah. So lately on long, long trips, like especially international, I'll take a little duffel on the plane that just has my oh crap stuff, you know, in case you see, I used oh crap instead of oh. Um, I like it. And so uh, it's got a spare pair of clothes and some extra toiletries and just some other stuff. You know, for when, if and when they lose your luggage and uh, you got some, and it, you don't stuff it full. So that way, when you do do some retail therapy, uh, for me, I'm like on the hunt for all the Amaros in the world right now, all the digestives. Okay. So you come home with a souvenir. Yeah. I put those in my luggage and then I can put my, you know, dirty clothes in my duffel. It's really great, guys. Great way to travel. So I love how you always share helpful tips for the people. You've just got, Certain things dialed in and it works. Man, speaking of, I gave my brethren down here in Cabo. I've gotten to know the production company that we use a lot down here uh, for a lot of these events. I've done really, really well. And David, uh, my audio guy down here, has a sound bullet and just crushes it. But this time around, I brought him a bag of crew brew and he was just going nuts for it. So. Uh, which don't tell Gene. Gene actually gave me the bag. Gene is mixing the Phil Wickham tour. So uh-huh. uh, you guys should all come out and hear Gene's Phil Wickham mix. But he gave me an extra bag for me and I gave it to David, which Gene wouldn't care. But man, he's getting better and better at roasting. He should quit mixing and just roast coffee, I think. Well, maybe he can do both. I mean, he's, well, he is. he's, he's currently do- he's done a good job of doing both for for a while. But if he quit mixing, then that would open up more opportunities for you. I can't mix. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, hey, I just could, stand back You there. could go to getmxu.com and learn a lot about mixing. Granted for a guy that can't mix, I mixed Bieber last week. So I guess. I'm well, peaked. that's true. And you sent me his uh, EQ on his guitar, which was very interesting. You know, yeah, for the people who, post on like church sound media attacks and all those Facebook groups. And they're like, guess the EQ, the, the screenshot that you sent me, I would not have guessed acoustic guitar from that picture. It was but something you never know. Hey, you know what I, did? I, I scooped the mids and I put it through the lexicon literally. Hey, and it, and it was great. I must also say, I've sometimes been that's on, all you need to do. I've been mixing on a CL five down here. Uh, I used to fly with the LV1 down here, and Customs is just annoying. You can't fly into Cabo oh, with yeah. two laptops. They pinch you with two laptops and make you pay uh, a fee of some kind. So we just quit bringing a lot of gear and using a lot of local gear. But I've been mixing on the CL5, and I've just got to say, Yamaha, for just the basic stock stuff that comes on it, is great. It's great, it's just, yeah. I've got the premium effects thing on here, so I've got the 5045 and the Dugans and all that other stuff. And it's just good. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's just good. good. I want to play on that DM7 and well, DM3. 
Speaking of that, and speaking of Yamaha, that is a perfect segue to our guest today. We had an interview a while back with our good buddy, Russ Long from Yamaha. What a guy. Man, a peach of a human, for sure. But he had a lot to do with the development of the DM7. And so I got a chance to sit down with him at MXU HQ and record some videos on the DM7 console. So we have a couple of courses that are on our platform regarding the DM7, its workflow, features, functionality. We even built a mix on it, which was pretty cool. Um, But it's a great desk. But more than a great desk, Russ, like you said, is a great person. So I can't wait for our brethren here and Sistrin to hear from Russ Long. So let's get to that. Well, we are really excited today to be joined by Russ Long. Russ is a longtime friend and colleague in the industry, has been around Christian music for a long time, both in the studio and in live production, works for Yamaha, and has just a, a great history all around. So we can't wait to hear about all that. But Russ, we're just grateful that you're with us today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, uh, of course, I'm a big MXU fan and a fan of everything you guys do. And it, it's I, truly an honor to be on the show. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, well, he called it a show. Jay, how, like how do you and enro- <laughs> so how do you guys know each other? Would, would you go back to the Peter Furler days or what's the, what's uh, the history with you guys? Yeah, it would have been Peter Furler. I would, uh, I think I met Russ in the middle 2000s uh, doing something with the Unhindered guys, but I, definitely with Peter Furler and then definitely with a little bit of, uh, definitely with a little bit of Crowder for sure. But I think, Jeff, the better question is, is how does Russ Long know Dad do worldwide? <laughs> That may be the better question. How do I know who? Me. That's my nickname. <laughs> well, I thought it was from Peter Furler, but um, I've got a long history with Peter and the Newsboys guys. Uh, I did uh, that Not Ashamed record with them back in, um, I don't even remember the year, 92 or 93 or something like wow. that, or 94, I can't remember. But worked on, um, I think, four records in a row that record and and going public and take me to your leader and a little bit of life liberty disco so had a a long stint um in the studio with them and that was during a time when um records weren't ex- you know files exchanged between people's home studios but it was a time when you booked a studio and hung out for six weeks or whatever so uh you know we spent a lot of time together and i had a ball working with those guys and and it was uh, a pretty uh pretty awesome thing seeing them go from a a band that was uh you know relatively unknown to to a band that was making golden platinum records so uh uh and and if you know i you know a lot of members changes since then and everything but i was i was pretty excited to be uh be around that and then it was excited when peter you know embarked on a solo career and and i think that was when i met you was uh when he was uh out doing that that was that was a great time i loved uh i love peter and summer And that whole season was great. That's cool. So let's rewind a little bit because I want to hear kind of how you got to that point. So Russ, tell us a little bit about your kind of beginnings in the industry, how you got to Nashville in the first place, just kind of what you, you know, how you got into this mess from the beginning. (laughs) 
what was my uh, my fall into the pit <laughs> exactly of, uh, of music. What was your gateway um, drug? Yeah, well, I was a fan of um, Christian music, and uh, back when I was in high school and early college, I grew up in Colorado and was a drummer and had um, aspirations of uh, being a drummer and uh, moved to Nashville halfway through college, transferred to Belmont University in 1986, and um, quickly realized that being a uh, drummer in a small town that uh, people thought was pretty talented didn't necessarily translate into being a talented drummer in Nashville, <laughs> a city packed full of um, one great musician after another. So um, so my musical talent was not what I had, had thought it was or hoped it would be. And, um, and also, uh, as I started to learn more about music and, and how records are made, I realized that maybe being a musician was not my really my passion after all i mean i love the way drums sounded that was what i always listened to and i listened to records but uh you know you make a you drum on a record that may only be a couple of days of work and then you're you're done and and the records handed off to other people and i realized that there was this producer who was in there for a month or two and this engineer that was in there for a month or two and they're the ones who really shaped the way the whole thing sounded not just the drums but the guitars and the bass and the keys and how it all interacted together so i really be began to be drawn into the whole behind the scenes aspect of uh of music and um and initially i was just had passions of working in the studio and that was mostly what i was doing yeah um but a lot of these guys that I worked with in the studio would be doing shows around town or whatever. And they're like, man, you know how I want to sound. Why don't you come out and mix my, uh, mix my show as well. And, um, and this was after I was already out of college, but, uh, and I had never really even given live sound much thought at that point. But, um, um, I realized that, man, that's really exciting and fun too. And in a whole different way than the studio, uh, than the studio is. And, and in some ways they go hand in hand, but in another way, they're the exact opposites, but, um, you know, both in both situations, I mean, if you make a great record, then people are going to listen to that over and over and over and carry it around and it'll become the soundtrack to a, a certain portion of their life. But if you yeah. mix a great show, it's over and done that night. But at the same time, the memory of it can live forever. People can talk about, man, that show I saw four years ago, or man, I remember when you mixed this show back in, uh, in 2008 or whatever. And, and, um, you know, a great show mix can actually survive forever too in the memories of people. So, uh, it's really interesting how the two, I think work hand in hand. And, um, and then also because it's so easy to get burned out in this business, they were, um, they were both kind of opposites of each other. You'd work in the studio for a long time and really get, you know, work these super long hours and start to to get burned out. And then you could go on the road with somebody and, and be out of town for a, four or five days and um, and do a bunch of shows. And it would actually feel like it was a vacation from the studio time. But mm. um, and then I'd go back into town and I'm ready to jump in the studio again. But I'm also tired from all this physical work of being on the road. But now I'm in the studio not having to do any physical work. And it's an entire mental thing. So they actually both complemented each other real well and allowed me to um, uh, work seven days a week. Uh, <laughs> 52 weeks a year, which uh, would not have been good if I was married at the time, but I didn't get married till I was uh, 31. So uh, that kind of all balanced out. But I spent my 20s working nearly every day of the year and um, 
and actually loving every minute of it. I couldn't believe that I was doing something that I still, uh, still loved, um, you know, year after year. That's awesome. Well, and it's, it's interesting how, cause I had, I had a similar journey in terms of doing both studio work and live production. And it's, it's amazing how the two sides of your brain or the two skill sets, however you want to say it, how they really do complement each other. I mean, I felt like when I started live production, I really had no idea how to make a PA sound good, but I did know how to make instruments sound good and well-balanced and all those things from the studio. So it was like, okay, maybe if I treat this PA like just a big set of near-field monitors, I can get close to what people would find appealing about this mix in terms of impact and balance and musicality and all that. So, you know, there is a technical side that's very different, but the musical sensibility and the, you know, the desire to bring people an emotional effect and all those things are so similar that I think people who can do both well really do have a good opportunity to, to work in both and to be successful. So that's really cool to hear. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting because, like you're saying, it, it, it they complement each other really well. But when we got started, people discouraged you from pursuing two things. They kind of people. I mean, people always told me, "Man, you got to decide. You got to do the studio, or you got to do the live thing." Right. And um, but but I was always kind of given a choice, and and which I didn't want to make a choice. I liked them both, but I almost kept it a secret. I mean, this was before social media and everything, and I didn't even tell people I was going on the road. And, uh, you know, if I if I was on the road and people called about sessions, I would just say, hey, I'm booked this day and this day. I can do it then. But I didn't even because so many people at that point, if you were on the road, they just take you off the list. To, they weren't going to ask anymore. Oh, he's a road guy now. Right. But um, and I learned learned that from Jerry McPherson, who was a, a good friend, who was a guitar player, and he played live with a lot of people, but he also was one of the busiest session guys in town. And he, I mean, and before cell phones, every time the bus stopped, he was out there with a roll of dimes, returning phone calls, acting like he was <laughs> on a session, saying, I'm booked this day, I'm booked today, but I can do this the day after tomorrow, knowing we were going to get back at midnight and he would be able to make a 10 a.m. session. Wow. Well, and he's one of the greatest guitar players in Nashville and his, you know, he played on everything and played with everybody. So, you know, being in demand like that, it's like, yeah, we're going to capitalize on every opportunity. That's cool. Right. My ADD won't let me do studio. I get so bored. I need a little sunlight every now and then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, uh, there's a lot of people that feel that way. I also can't, I also can't blame it on the PA. I came back like, yeah, sorry. PA sucks. Acoustics suck. <laughs> Can't really do that in the studio. That's true. So let's, uh, so in, in, in those early years, um, you know, you mentioned newsboys earlier, but who are, who are some of the artists that you're most proud of having worked with? Well, I, um, had a long track of, of working with Steve Taylor, who is a solo artist and was a producer. And I did all the stuff he, uh, produced for probably, I don't know, 12 years or 15 years or something. I mean, we had a, two different studios that we were partners in and, um, I, uh, did all that newsboys stuff, you know, he produced or co-produced it with Peter and, um, yep. and I engineered that stuff. And, um, uh, and he did a couple of records for guardian. He did the sixpence none the richer record, which, um, I mean, that's one of the highlights of my, uh, 
career, I think. I mean, the song Kiss Me was a number one song in 11 different countries. And it was so, uh, and this was long before internet streaming or anything, but it was so common in those days when I was going to work in the morning, I would actually turn on the radio and step through stations and see how many different stations I could hear play and kiss me on before I got to the studio where I was working at that day. And, um, and sometimes it would be four or five different stations I'd hear playing it. And, That's incredible. Um, Tiffany and I went on vacation and we heard it um, in the airport in New York City. We heard it in London. We heard it in Germany. We heard it in Austria, all in one vacation, just to different places. And it was like, you know, good grief. I can't believe that this is something I uh, uh, recorded in my garage, you know. And, um, and, and that was early before there were that many home studios and stuff. And we didn't do the basic tracking in my garage, garage but we did all the vocals there and a lot of the guitars. And, wow. and it was... Uh, pretty uh awesome but um my high school band my high school band played kiss me uh at our senior prom and i I really i don't know how to play accordion um and so i just had this excuse me here jeff you can bleep this out but casio and (laughs) it had the best (laughs) fake accordion sound i think the worse the keyboard the better the accordion sound is what i've decided um well but I could say the, the interesting thing is that's um, that's not an accordion. That's a melodica, um, and it just oh. sounds. But it sounds very much like an accordion. accordion and they yeah. had a Jerry Del Mc, Jerry Del McFadden who was playing with them live at the time, who's in the band The Mavericks now. But he played an accordion live, so I think everybody th- always thought that thought was that was what it was on the record. But it was a. a I'm going to text you both a photo of me with that accordion here in a second, <laughs> or that that fake accordion. That's amazing. <laughs> I I think Jay playing a Casio for a high school prom is it's probably emblematic of most of Jay's twenties. I'm I'm not sure or high school or even now you might find Jay at your local high school prom this spring. We'll see. That's amazing. Well, you know I know I know of you mostly through your work with Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, and particularly with the um, you know the live production of Amy and Michael's Christmas tours over the years. And, you know, that you talk about uh, an experience that creates a memory for people. I mean, that is in Christian music to me, that's one of the most iconic traditions of the last 20 years. So talk for a minute about working with them and just what, what that's like. Well, they're interesting artists. I mean, they're both, um, kind of uh mainstays at ccm and were some of the the foundations of what the whole uh industry was built on but and, and as big as each of them are individually they're far bigger when they are together and that's because mm-hmm. they have a history of being together and they um and they've both done multiple christmas records and i think they're both bigger at christmas time than they are throughout the rest of the year so uh it for was my wife exciting. let me just interject for my wife christmas doesn't start until we play Amy's first, you know, Tender Tennessee Christmas, that whole record, top to bottom. That's, that's like day after Thanksgiving. That's the start of our Christmas season in my house. <laughs> yeah. And you're right to not start Christmas music till after Thanksgiving. I think it's pretty much sacrilegious <laughs> to play any Christmas album before. I agree. Uh, but it actually, 
when I've done rehearsals with them, which always take place before Thanksgiving, you feel a little guilty about actually rehearsing the music before Thanksgiving. But then you have to be like, well, we got to rehearse it before to be able to start it right after Thanksgiving. But um, yeah, so Amy and Michael, because they've both done multiple Christmas records uh, that have been fairly successful. I mean, the Tennessee Christmas, I think, celebrated 40 years this year, I mean, it's wow. it's been a uh, around for a long time, and is many many people's favorite uh, favorite Christmas record, you know. And um, anyway, I had been Amy's front of house engineer for many years, and then when they started doing Christmas shows again, uh, I was able to go out and uh, and mix those, and uh, and it was great. And a lot of them we had full symphony orchestras. I can't remember if you've seen one of them with the full orchestra, yep. but we typically had between 68 and 72 orchestra members and um and between that and the full band well over 100 um inputs so it was an exciting show and a different orchestra every day which is uh in some ways problematic but also exciting and keeps you on your toes but we carried with a conductor traveled with a conductor david Hamil- hamilton who's an amazing oh, arranger and conductor yeah he's phenomenal and and uh and really can suss out an orchestra quick and see what the uh weak areas are and, and make sure we work on it to to make it great you know and we never had a bad sounding show and and david would work wonders because a lot of times we'd all be on the edge of our seats at the beginning thinking oh gee are we gonna be able to pull this <laughs> off and and he'd make it happen well for people who don't understand that i mean that aspect alone is such a massive thing to undertake i mean all the orchestra members were local so from city to city you would just show up and never know what you're going to get. Where were, where were most of those people drawn from? Were they from local symphonies or just amateur musicians or what was the, no, they were, how did that work? They were usually, usually local symphonies, sometimes uh, college students as well. So it was, or sometimes a combination, but, um, but uh, local symphonies more than, more than anything. But uh, the, the problem is a lot of, I mean, the Christmas time is a busy time for, orchestra players and i think they would typically think that it's not going to be that hard because most string arrangements for christmas are not that hard but these uh uh the orchestration i mean the the charts that david and other people have written for amy and michael's albums are quite complicated and demanding and if they hadn't looked at the stuff ahead of time a lot of times it was a a little bit uh rough at first yeah so they're they're mostly showing up in sight reading these books on the spot and you've only got a limited number of rehearsal hours. If, if, if many, I mean, hardly any rehearsal and they're just jumping in with both feet. The, the, the other thing for me that was amazing about David is that the whole show happens with no click. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so he's just, he's literally the click track, the conductor, the music director all in one. And you know, the, the times that I've seen it, it, it always just came off beautifully. I mean, it, it, it's just such a testament to his talent as the leader of the band at that moment. But you had great players in the rhythm section too. I mean, you know, those guys were no slouch and they were, they were consistent day to day, right? They traveled with, with the tour. So at least you had yeah, that Yeah, they were the same on. every day. Yeah. <laughs> um. And like Greg Morrow, who is the drummer for most of that, he would reference a click some just to get the tempo before and then, but then count it in. But no, yeah, there was no click track during the songs and stuff. So it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. 
um, and early in the early days of doing it, uh, before, you know, consoles were a little smaller. I think we did a lot of them. I had a 5d at front of house, a PM 5d, which, you know, only has 48, uh, inputs in them yeah. or 48 mono inputs. And, um, uh, and we would have a, the symphonies often had their own engineer and they would end up mixing, uh, the symphony and giving me symphony stems. So I would have, you know, six stereo inputs from that console. But the problem was, um, and a lot of the thought behind that was this is somebody who's worked with this symphony all the time because symphonies are a lot of times very reluctant about working with sound engineers yeah. because there is the best way to mark, to mic a, a you know, a violin or a viola is from fairly distant and they got some guy that they don't know coming in, wanting to put a mic on, you know, connect it to their instrument or put it real close to the instrument. There's a lot of uh, resistance, but uh, they don't sometimes understand that if there's a drum set on stage, if it's not a close mic, every mic on stage is a drum set mic. If you can't right. mic the thing from four <laughs> feet above and expect it to pick up more, more violin than, um, than drums. Yeah. And a so, lot of these um, folks haven't even played, in a room with a PA before, much less a right. drummer. You're on exactly stage. right. So yeah, it's it's a totally different experience for them. Yeah, classically trained, and um, and of course those instruments in a normal classical setting sound best if they're not mic'd at all. But um, right. Uh, but anyway, it um. So we would work with their local sound guy because he already had a relationship with them, and often they thought he was the one sound guy in the world who wasn't in cahoots with the devil and uh um but the problem was once in a while i mean they would usually be good once in a while they'd be okay and once in a while they would be terrible and you're really at the mercy of who that local guy was so once bigger um consoles came out uh we started i started mixing the entire thing on the desk the whole orchestra and the band and everything myself and that was um originally on the um SSL console and um, which was great. And then Ravage came out and I decided to give it a try and I couldn't believe how great it sounded. And so immediately the first year Ravage had been released, I made the move from SSL to Ravage and, um, and never looked back. And I mean, I just, I fell in love with that, uh, with that console then. That's really cool. So what, what, are you ta- what are you taking out now? Which particular Ravage? Well, the, Latest, I did the Michael Amy Christmas shows this year, which was just nine shows, but I actually got to mix those on the DM7, the new uh, Yamaha oh. console. All right. All right. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's let's rewind and talk about just the day of those shows. What does it look like getting all those orchestra mics in place? And, you know, just the setup has got to be. And what pretty, mics were they? Pretty grueling. Yeah. What's your. Like microphones well, and how many and placement and how many hands do you have to help with that and all that? Because that's that's a daunting task when you've got, you know, rehearsals coming and you're, you know, loading in day of. I mean, we had the DPA 4061s uh, or the 4099s on most of the strings. Yep. And um, 4099s, no, we had 4061s on piano as well. We had some... I mean, dynamics on a lot of the brass, um, dynamics on timpani, DPAs on, yeah, all the upright bass and, um, uh, and the, um, and the cellos too. I mean, the DPA stuff just sounds phenomenal. Sounds so good. Yeah. Uh, basically 
all you got to do is set your high pass filter. I mean, you might do a little tweaking, but that was great. And we had so many, um, and we had to load in and get up and running pretty quick because I think we had a sound check usually around. I mean, tune the PA in the morning right before lunch, and then sound check the band at one, and then orchestra showed up at two, and we had a full three hours with the orchestra. Wow! Um, every day, well, so they what would, would they, they use would for just monitoring? hit the parts. You know, they wouldn't run the whole. They would. Um, they had a couple of uh, fills on either side of the um, stage and um, and David Hamilton had his own wedge. And um, so between what they would hear the rhythm from the drums actually on the stage, and then they would hear, uh, hear uh, vocals and, and some more key pitch items, keyboards and stuff through those two side speakers. And that's kind of how it would, how it would be. Wow. That's awesome. And we had a front of house. I mean, I mixed front of house. I had a front of house tech, uh, the monitor engineer, monitor tech. And we had, um, and the monitor tech usually did most of the stage patching for the band. But the um, we had two symphony techs that did all the mics for the symphony, or the orchestra. And that was their job. They also set up music stands and made sure chairs were in the right place and everything. But they, that was kind of two guys' full-time job was getting the orchestra set. That's a big day. job. Yeah, that's wild. That's awesome. So let's uh, let's talk for a minute about your journey from studio world and touring into working with Yamaha, because you you've been around Yamaha for a long time too. So give us a little history on that. I had I've long been a Yamaha fan. I mean, I I uh, went to I had been I had not toured much. I don't know if I ever did a tour on a Yamaha analog desk. I had used either, um, I mean, I'd done a couple of tours with Soundcrafts, a couple with, uh, Par- I did a tour with Paragon 2, did a, several Midas tours back in the analog days. Mm-hmm. And then when the PM1D came out, um, I got a, a mix Stephen Curtis Chapman at a Billy Graham crusade and um, at the football stadium here and um, and was blown away by how, easy it was to use and quick it was to dial in and was and that wood grain by digital like already. That wood grain. <laughs> man in all seriousness i love the fact that there is a piece of real wood on the front of the console to me uh for so many people front of house audio or audio in general has become too much like an it job instead of the job of a musician and that is one of the things that makes me feel like i'm behind my instrument the same way the guitar player or the drummer or the keyboard player is behind their instrument and i'm Preach. and yeah. uh, i <laughs> love it more than anything that's i awesome. own more i'm own i own more ethercon than xlr yeah that's a so, sad well, state of affairs <laughs> it uh uh so the the pm1d i had a great experience with it so i went to pm1d school and um which they had a, you know, Yamaha had this great training program where you could go spend two days and really get to know and understand a console well. And then I uh, started touring with the the PM1D at that point and, um, and loved it. And that was with Stephen Curtis and, um, uh, and used it for several years and, um, and then had um, uh, jaunts with different other digital consoles as well. And, um, 
but had always loved the Yamaha stuff. Um, liked the CL when it came out. I mean, I didn't like it as well maybe as the PM1D, but uh, but still liked it. And um, somehow through it all, I uh, I had met Chris Taylor. Um, I don't know if it was in the late '90s, I believe, and um, and he uh, or early 2000s, but he was one of these guys. I mean, he was the uh, the Tom Lord Algae or the George Massenberg or the Jack Joseph Quegg of live sound. And I mean, he was yeah. the guy who would, I mean, he toured with Amy Grant for a long time, but he also toured with Barbara Streisand, Michael Jackson, Joe Cocker, Janet Jackson. I mean, all these huge bands that were known for having great sound. And, um, and he was kind of legendary in, in town. And, um, and I remember it was a GMA week and I was doing something down, uh, downtown at the national, uh, convention center and, um, with Phil Keggy and, uh, walked in and I'm running up to front of house, just analog console. And I'm supposed to push my faders up halfway. If I want to gate on them and push them up all the way, if I want to comp on them and I got a front of house guy, <laughs> that's going to help me patch everything up. And, um, the front of house guy is super nice guy and I'm um, patching stuff in. And I was like, well, Hey, I'm Russ Long. I'm, um, thanks for helping. And um, he goes, well, I'm Chris Taylor. And I'm like, the Chris Taylor. And um, <laughs> what do you mean by that or whatever? And he was always the most humble guy, but I mean, it's like, what in the world? I got the guy who was just on the road with Michael Jackson patching in my gates and comps, which felt very weird. And, um, and I got super nervous all of a sudden. And, and, and remember, um, just, uh, you know, I, I actually tried to hand it off to him. It's like, man, I think it'd be better if I just let you mix this. Cause I mean, he had been the kind of the guy, if an artist came in without any, uh, without an engineer, he was mixing them anyway. So he'd been mixing a lot of the acts and they and never goes, sounded better. You're probably right. Um, <laughs> but, and, and he goes, man, Phil has you out here because you make him comfortable. It doesn't matter what I do behind this board. It's going to sound better if you're behind here because Phil's going to play better knowing you're here. And it just made me set me at ease and was just amazing. And, um, um, and anyway, he just at that point, I just thought, man, this this guy is one of the greatest guys I've ever met. And um, uh, And it's so interesting how the guys who have generally the better credit list and they have the uh the uh, humbler and nicer they are which i'm sure you've encountered that as well it's it's the 100%. guys the guys with the attitudes are usually the guys who don't deserve to have the attitude um and the guys that do are are always super kind but um and i mean i found that over and over with you know andy meyer or, or um, paul david hager or whatever these guys who are great engineers but are as humble as can be uh as well but um Anyway, we became friends after that and um and um interacted a little bit and then it was not too long after that that he went to work for Yamaha as an R&D engineer and um and he started bringing me in as an evaluator and I think it's pretty common when a new product's being developed uh you know to bring in anywhere from 10 to 30 or 40 people to get opinions on different things, whether it's mm -hmm. sonic things or layout things. And sometimes that was just a matter of looking at a piece of foam board with knobs and faders and buttons and screens on it and saying, is this good or what do you like or not like? And it's, no, I reached, I touch this all the time. It shouldn't be way over here. It should be right in front of me or whatever. And, um, and it was, you know, once every year or two, I would spend time with Chris and we'd get to go over some stuff and, um, and I absolutely loved it. And, um, and I just told him, man, if you ever, uh, if you ever uh, need 
you know, if Yamaha ever needs somebody else to do this, I would love to be involved in it. Or, and, um, and when he decided to retire a few years, well, I guess it's six, seven years ago now, he um, called me and said, man, I'm not the one hiring, but I'm retiring. And um, if you're interested, I'll point you in the direction. I can't guarantee anything. But um, so I applied for the R&D position and, um, and got hired. And that was, uh, like I said, a little over five years ago and then did that for right at five years. And then um, they've did some company reconfigurations stuff a few months ago. And not only was I doing high, was I doing R and D work, but I was also doing a lot of uh, training for, for high end engineers who are wanting to switch from another platform to Yamaha or, um, and doing some training at schools and some, you know, different trade shows and stuff. So they kind of restructured the way some stuff worked and, um, and I'm still doing a lot of that same stuff, but I'm not part of the R and D team anymore. I'm part of the marketing team now. And that's as of, um, this past September, but, um, but That's I'm loving great. it, and um, and I never wanted to work for a manufacturer. But uh, Yamaha was a company that I believed in 100%. I was a user of their products, and it felt very natural to uh, to become part of the company. That's so cool. So when you say high end engineers, is that like eight kilohertz and up, or like what what's considered a high end engineer? Oh no no. I'm talking high end for a younger person. So we're talking 12 to 14 K and up. Oh man. I, stopped, <laughs> high end, I, I, I realize for you, high end is probably six to eight K. Listen, I stopped but, uh, hearing 14 K a long time ago. <laughs> no, that's funny. So my, you know, but, my, my hearing's 2020. <laughs> 20 Hertz to 20 Hertz. Oh, maybe, maybe they probed the wrong thing when I went to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> So that leads us really naturally into a conversation about Yamaha's newest console, which you and I had the privilege of working together on some videos for the MXU platform and for Yamaha about the new DM7. So you mentioned that you took it out with uh, Amy and Michael this year, but just for people who haven't seen it yet or haven't had a chance to watch the videos on MXU, Talk for a minute about the process of developing that desk, because I really think it is a massive step for Yamaha in terms of bringing a lot of what was great, what is great about Rivage into a smaller form factor and a more accessible price point. You know, for people who've used CL consoles, it's going to feel really familiar, but you've got a lot of the feature set from Rivage coming down into this pretty amazing what, I, what most people would look at it and say little desk, but it's far from a little desk. So talk about the DM7 for a few minutes. Well, it is the next uh, generation of Yamaha console. And what we um, saw, you know, Yamaha is interesting because before Rivage, their philosophy had always been built build a desk, whether it was in the analog world or the digital world, build a desk where what goes in goes out. Um, you may tonally shape shape the sound with the EQ, but you're still not really changing the sound. It's pure, natural. What goes in goes out. Um, it, you know, bunch of channels go in, it gets summed, it goes out, and and that was kind of their whole philosophy. And with Ravage, uh, a partnership with uh, Rupert Neve was uh started and that uh incorporated both a a bunch of plugins as well as Rupert Neve um integration into the mic pre's to where it's an entirely different thing it's it's not what goes in what is what goes out it is 
allowing the engineer to completely uh, tonally um, and harmonically adjust the sound. And um, the the RPIOs have both transformer emulation and... um, and silk added to them, which are uh, Rupert Neve, uh, something that Rupert Neve has in his hardware devices, mm-hmm. and um, and those are are incorporated into the mic pre now, and it really allows the preamp to be perfectly sonically matched for the sound source. And you and I both know from a, having a studio background, it was very common. Um, I don't care if you're in the best studio in the world with this great 8068 Neve console or whatever, you may use a couple of uh, API pre's on the on yep. the guitars or Grace pre's on the piano or GML's on the vocal. You're always picking and choosing mic pre's for the sound source. Right. Uh, but live engineers have normally not had that opportunity. They've got a great console that has a bunch of great pre's, but every pre sounds exactly the same. And maybe you chose a Midas because you wanted a more aggressive rock and roll sound, or you chose a Yamaha because you wanted a cleaner pop sound, but you t- kind of chose a, po- a console based on the type of sound you wanted, and you had every mic pre on the desk sounding the same. And maybe you brought along one or two extra pre's for key inputs, your lead vocal and your artist guitar or whatever. But in general, you were using all every, all the same preamps on every single input. Yep. And Rivage, with the way they've integrated uh, the RPIO mic pre's, uh, Every preamp can sound entirely different. You can dial in blue or red silk, which changes the harmonic content, changes the transients of the sound source, and um, and really allows the sound to be tailored. So that was a pretty big step for uh, for Yamaha. And uh, a lot of these analog diehards who said, I'll never miss, mix on a digital console, all of a sudden were happy to um, – move to a digital desk because they felt like it sounded like a uh, sounded like an analog desk. And I know back in the days when I mixed on an analog, I never put compressors on my drums. I always ran my, and they sounded great because I've got all this analog circuitry that rounded off the transients and, and warmed up the sound and made it more punchy or whatever. And what came out was better than what went in. Right. But in digital world, I always put compressors on everything because it, it sounded exactly like what went in and it didn't have the, the punch or the impact that I needed it to have. And finally with Rivage, you were able to make this, uh, make the, uh, the sound and tailor each input the way you liked it. So that was something people loved. Of course, the downside is Rivage is extremely expensive. So far beyond the price range of, uh, of, unless you're just, a, you know, a high end tour, it was out of your price range. Um, but uh, we saw, I mean, it was interesting because I was already at Yamaha at that point. I mean, I think Rivage had been out two and a half or three years when I joined Yamaha. But CL cells were growing when I joined the company and they kept growing each year, which was just bizarre to me because it was a console that was already six or seven years old when I joined Yamaha. Mm-hmm. But yet people became interested in Yamaha because of Rivage. They couldn't afford Rivage, so they, they started moving CL. to CL. That makes sense. Um, and then Yamaha released the PM5 and the PM3, which were both lower-priced Rivage. Sounds exactly the same. And with Rivage, the I.O. capacity is all based on the DSP. So even with the little one-screen PM3, you can still have 288 inputs. 
and but at a way more affordable price point, which a lot of people got interested in, but still beyond the the financial reach for you know a lot of small theaters or big clubs or small churches. Yep. So um the DM7 is the console that fills that gap. And it um while it does not use the RPIO mic pre's, it does have a lot of tone shaping capabilities uh on every channel on the um on the console and the smaller version has 72 inputs. The larger version has 120 inputs and it's a, uh, roughly the same. Well, it's a slightly under the price of a CL, but yet, uh, as far as it's, uh, where it, it, as far as it's, it's power as a desk, it would fall somewhere halfway between a CL and a Revage. So it feels more like a baby Revage than it does like a CL plus. And I think it's going to be a huge, um, huge thing for Yamaha. I mean, people are excited as can be about it. And, um, and uh, I mean, one thing that was exciting for me getting to do those Christmas shows with Amy and Michael on the DM seven, uh, the monitor engineer was using a Rivage PM 10. So I actually took, uh, we put a Dante card in the RPIOs and I took a Dante split off the mic pre's. And since that silk and the transformer emulation is built into the pre, I still had the advantage of, having that Rivage sound quality on the head amps, but then uh, the space saving uh, flexibility and the, um, f- you know, the form factor of the DM seven at front of house. That's very cool. Well, that awesome. it's a very exciting development. And I, you know, when we got to work together earlier this year on those kind of training videos, it, it really opened a lot of, possibilities in my mind for churches because the form factor is obviously a lot smaller. The price point is a lot more affordable, but in terms of workflow and ergonomics and sound quality and, you know, onboard plugins and the ability to use VST plugins, it's like there, there's so many features that are packed into this thing that, um, I mean, I think any church looking for, uh, you know, an upgrade or an alternative, or, you know, if you're in the market for a change, it's definitely worth considering. It's, it's, it's jam packed full of power and features that are really impressive. Well, and by default now it's coupled with the, uh, the Rio mic trees, which have been this, the standard IO box for the, um, both the QL and the CL consoles. And the problem is though, the QL and CL are only operated at 48K. So those Rios, even though they had 96K potential from the beginning, you were only getting to use them at 48K with uh, the CL and QL. And their sound quality is significantly better when you open them up to 96K. And in, in of extreme importance to monitor engineers, the latency is cut in half at 96K. So, um, so you've got a way better performing uh, I.O. box than you ever imagined. So for churches that already have a CL or QL architecture, all they have to do is replace the surface and they've got a huge upgrade. So it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. That's a great point. So moving into 2024, Russ, like what, um, what else excites you about what's next? I mean, I know DM7 is just out, but. On the is there like an front. M7 revamp? Are we going to revamp the <laughs> M7CL? I mean, they have not discontinued this 
the CL at this point, but I can't imagine anybody choosing a CL over a DM7, you know, in, in my mind. I mean, the only reason I can see making that happen is if you're a, um, like if you're a cruise ship and you've got three CLs already and you need a fourth console, you want everybody to know the same console. So maybe it makes sense to buy a, another CL then. Or if you're a church with multiple campuses and you need compatibility with all your volunteers, then maybe buy another one. But otherwise, the DM7 wins it by um, leaps and bounds. I, I should say, Jeff, I know it was awesome earlier this year when we got to spend time doing the videos, like you mentioned. Um, of course, that was all before I had ever mixed a show on the desk. And you could right. spend a whole lot of time on a desk and still be unsure of how it's going to uh, translate into the real world. And I actually was a little bit nervous about going out and doing these shows. It's like, ah, man, I really hope I, I like this. I think I will. But <laughs> and you think you're moving fast, but until somebody's leaning over your shoulder or they need this right now, or you got an audience there already, or, you know, you don't ever know how it's going to translate in the real world. And I couldn't have been more pleased. It, it was so easy to adapt to and um and the workflow is great and uh and i'm sure you remember from our, our time on it it's it's kind of a new direction for yamaha in that the selected channel has always been such a big part of yamaha console design and that's yep. in the past has always been a physical selected channel and there's still a selected channel but it is a virtual selected channel now and how quickly you move from physical to virtual uh you know you don't you don't know how how that's going to actually translate in the real world and i'm happy to say it translates great and i was i was couldn't be more pleased and it was just a wonderful experience and and i saw people night after night at every venue you know excited about it they had heard about it they had never seen it and um and um and people were you know couldn't believe how how good it sounded and everything as well so it never had a single technical problem the entire time either which uh you know I wasn't 100% sure that would happen. You don't think you're going to have any technical problems, but you've never yeah. used it in the real world and you're just well, crossing that, your fingers, you know. That needs to be that needs to be the yardstick on a tour of, you know, whether a console is viable. Is is this reliable? Is it going to crash on me? Is it going to glitch, you know? And thank goodness, you know, it performed well. That's great. So, um is there anything else from the Yamaha world that are because our audience is mostly house, house of worship folks, a lot of church tech directors, a lot of church audio folks. Um, anything on the house of worship front from Yamaha that is exciting for the near future? Well, there's nothing I can talk about, but there's I can tell you there is more exciting stuff coming out uh, in the near future. I mean, I don't know what near is, um, but, uh, you know, before long. And I think more and more integration between, um, between, uh, devices, which I think you'll probably see that across the board with all manufacturers, just the ability to, to do more through Dante and, and, um, and seamless integration between, um, components that other people make and, and Yamaha and everything as well. So, um, I mean, it's exciting. Uh, it's definitely exciting times. Uh, you've probably heard, but, you know, Rivage had been um, just doing spot manufacturing for a while. Manufacturing never stopped, but it was not at full due to um, uh, component shortages. And it is uh, back to full in the next 
couple of weeks. So, I mean, by the time this is aired, it'll be back to full manufacturing. And 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 uh, I know people orders have never stopped being filled, but they were being filled slower than we would like. And now we're going to be able to fill them at a normal rate. So people are real excited to hear that. So uh, yeah, there's a lot uh, of people who'd be glad to hear that integrators and customers alike. They'll be thrilled to know that that's that's back up to speed. That's cool. Russ, you have had such a long journey, uh, studio, live touring, family, the whole nine yards. A lot of our audience are staff at a church or bivocational stuff. What is it's like some very practical life advice that you would give someone older than you, your age, younger than you, just as the vigors of life are being thrown at people? Well, I always think it's important to look through the eyes of an very old retired myself as far as when I make decisions. And sometimes I'll get an opportunity to mix a pretty cool event and I'll think, ah, man, I can't afford to miss that, but, um, or I don't want to miss that or whatever. But I think about, uh, when I'm 80 years old, if I live that long and I'm looking back at life, I want to have my kids feel that I was present for them and that, and that uh, I was not a, a dad who was away, but a dad who was there and was present in their lives and a wife that is still with me and, and feels that I made her the priority through it all. And um, and grandkids that love me and feel like I was part of their life, too. And that's the most important thing. And it's real easy, I think, short term to make decisions based on finances or status of a certain show or gig or tour, but ultimately you're not even going to remember any of that, but you are going to remember whether, uh, whether you were, uh, there for your family, you know? So I just think keeping above all, keeping family, the most important as is really the best thing you can do. That's so good. I had to make one of those decisions myself just a couple weeks ago. And that was the filter for me, you know, as appealing and tantalizing as this opportunity was, it was like, I just, you know, next year is Stella's last year at home. And, Oh man, to, I didn't even think about that. That's yeah, awesome. F- for me to be gone that much, it was just like, sorry guys, I would love to do this, but I just can't. And I know that, you know, as much as that seems disappointing at the time, I'm never going to regret that. So that's great advice. No, you're not going to, you're not going to be 75 and look back and go, ah oh, man, if I just <laughs> done that one tour, yeah, but if man, I you could easily if, <laughs> look, you could easily look back and, and regret not spending more time or being around. I mean, that was part of Chris Taylor's whole reason in leaving the touring world was because his son was approached. I mean, his son was going into high school and he knew he only had three more years before yeah. he's, he's basically gone. And, and he made the decision to take a job so he would be there. And, and he told me how great it was to, he drove the tractor trailer onto the football field every night for the band to use for their performance or whatever. And he goes, I did that every home game for my son's entire high school career. And he goes, I can't, there's nothing. I don't care how big the tour was. I mean, this is a guy who would, like I said, Michael Jackson and Joe Cocker and Barbara Streisand, but it was not worth any of that to miss his son's years in high school. Yeah. No offense to the good people of Iowa, but I'm never going to say, man, if I had only gone to Des Moines one more time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That is so true. No, you're exactly right. That's so true. Russ, Russ, I I think – go ahead, Jeff. No, go ahead, Jay. It's good. We were going to say the same thing. Go ahead. No, you do it. 
Russ, I think. Russ, I think it goes without saying, you know, that you're well respected in the industry and uh, not just for your craft, but for who you are. Uh, I don't think I've ever walked up to you at a show and you've been uh, unkind. So thank you for that, for being one of the good guys. And thank you for joining us on the MXU podcast. Hopefully we'll get to do it again soon. And if you haven't checked out Jeff, are those videos out yet, guys? I don't know if they've been. By the time this is out, I think they're going to be available. Yes. That's awesome. Where, uh, are you online anywhere, Russ? Are you on the socials? Uh, a little bit here and there, but not very often. I mean, I try to do, uh, uh, try to stay involved in it. I'm terrible at socials. I hate to say it. I, <laughs> it's so I actually, um, I actually try to, I'm one of the only people I know that tried to be on it more because I end up missing things. It, it's such a weird thing because most people feel like they're on it way too much and that it's a time kill and everything else. But I, so many people, that's how they share things. And if somebody, you know, has cancer or somebody passes away or whatever, a lot of times that's your only way to find out. And if you're not on it, you miss it. It's like, man, I got to spend more time on, on socials, but, um, well, anyway, if, I, if anybody does well, want to reach out or has a question about Yamaha specifically or wants wants to get more lowdown from you on specific stuff, what's the best way for people to contact you? Uh, my email address is best. I don't mind giving that out. rlong Great. at yamaha.com. Great. Well, if you have questions about the DM7 or other things about Yamaha, reach out to Russ. He's, he's on their marketing team and knows everything about everything Yamaha and a lot of other stuff too. So Russ, <laughs> I'm going to make my dad listen to this podcast because literally I just got a text from one of my best friend's wives that said, I've never met your father, but he's my biggest Facebook supporter. That's real love. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much Russ. Well, thank you. Have a good uh, rest of the day and, and happy new year to both of you guys. Yeah. Happy new year. Take care. I feel like every time I'm around Russ or hear Russ talk. It's like absorbing so much wisdom. Yeah. You know, he's just a smart guy. He's pretty dry. Like, Well, he's been around for so long. Yeah, he really has. Like, I mean, he's he can't be as old as you, but like, he's got to be up there. I think he's older than me, but he's he doesn't look for it. so many people over the years. No, he doesn't. He's great. He's thank you. He really has. And he's well respected. I remember when we were doing the, um, what did we call those things where people came and brought their mixes? We did it. And that's you all access, all access. When we're doing the all access and him and Chris Taylor came and just both of theirs demeanor and approach and kindness. I uh, would take every day as encouragement, you know, people in life, which I'll come back to the word kindness in a minute because I want to share something. But uh, again, like I said, like I've never been a massive CL fan just because I haven't been around it that much. And I always got it on one off some court. I mean, I mix the NRA convention on it. Uh, oh, I didn't. I mix the NRA convention on a PM uh, five last yeah. year, PM seven, maybe. I don't know. It was a PM and I had to use the uh, Neve stuff, you know, but because I was at the NRA convention, I could only use it in red and not in blue. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but like every time I walk up to a Yamaha desk, I just find it friendly. And I get yeah. stuck often, and I always, like, I've texted Lee before. I've Richard Clark, who, you know, Yamaha guys, you know, it's guys that love him. But I just think it's super friendly, volunteer friendly. 
and I am enjoying it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Don't tell, don't tell my LV one, but I'm enjoying the that's Yamaha okay. platform. I'm enjoying the. Yeah, platform. well, sometimes, sometimes you have to diversify your uh, preferences because things, you know, that's why there are so many consoles, which is great. And I think when once people get their hands on the DM7, they're really going to like it. I mean, I really, honestly like. I think what they brought from the familiarity of the workflow of the CL series combined with some of what's kind of trickled down from the Rivage series. I mean, it's, it's an impressive console. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, please do. Yeah. You're going to love it. Also just a good reminder for us all. Don't get stuck with the, with your, your default tools, you know, uh, our friend Christian Hahn is on this event with me. Uh, of forged design. Oh man, so what a what a yeah. good friend! And we were bantering. You know, I was giving him a hard time because he's got a grand MA down here, and, and like for this corporate gig, he's got a million faders that he doesn't need. Which, granted, I guess I do on my full size CL. <laughs> but I just and I know lighting is a little different than audio, but not that different. When someone's like, "Yeah, I don't know how to use that," like I think it's more fear or lack of control and understanding. You got to be able to walk up to whatever desk. Lighting, audio, video. I know it's not that black and white, but you got to be, I feel like you got to be confident in your gift. You got to know that you're a talented audio guy or a talented lighter guy, a talented video guy. And you got to be all, you got to be able to walk up to it and you got to be able to make it work. Yeah. And things go awry. I felt, felt out of control on some of these corporate things, which leads me back to the word. I honestly do feel like the word that God keeps giving me that I keep hearing uh, from other people, not about me, because <laughs> it's not true. But like in talks, in podcasts I've listened to, books I'm reading is the word kindness, uh, which I mentioned earlier. And so there's anything you can take away from this here at the very end is be kind to yourself, be kind to your volunteers, be kind to your staff, be kind to your boss, be kind to your family. Just let's just all be kind because it feels like it's getting crazy out there. And we're about to have just a knockout, drag out election cycle. So let's just all be kind. We can disagree. We can all not disagree. Or, you know, if you need to hash it out, get in the boxing ring with somebody and then leave it in the ring when you get out of the ring. Um, so cast your votes. Who would win in a celebrity death match, me or Jeff? <laughs> I love it. Well, man, that's a good word to end on for sure. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. Can't wait to just see you at the MXU pop-ups. And again, the first one is March 19th. So if you're in the Southwest of the United States, please come. You'll, you'll have a chance to network with a lot of other churches from the area. We're going to talk a lot about leadership and team and a little bit about gear. And it's just going to be so fun. We're going to, we're going to feed you. And we have an outing at the end of the day where we're all going to go and play a little bit. And so it's going to be a good time. Can't wait to see you there. Go to getmxu.com and find out all the details. Meanwhile, we'll see you next time on the MXU Podcast. Take care, buddy. Much love, everybody.